For me, it's my sedative. It's what makes me feel of service to do this type of work that really begins to actualize this rhetoric of social change. It's saying that these concepts of equity, equality, liberty, justice, everything that I believe we personify in democracy becomes a moral obligation and a social contract. And that we are all, yourself and me, collective stewards in this process. And what is the work that's necessary? It's not compartmentalized or siloed. It is really creating a mixture because everyone has to play a role in really standing up for these value systems that, again, we hold as truths. And if we don't believe in them anymore, to me, that is no different than an airplane going into two towers in lower Manhattan. It's the same threat to our democracy. This is Design Influence. I'm Isabella Swiderski. In the preface of their influential book, How to Kill a City, P. Moskowitz quotes Alicia Boyd, a Brooklyn resident and community steward. People are just tired. They've fought and they've sometimes won, but they're tired. Developers don't get tired. Money doesn't get tired. Alicia is describing the endless battle against rezoning and the highest and best use of land that are often precursors to what is now commonly described as gentrification. The term gentrification was coined in 1964 by British sociologist Ruth Glass after she observed the transformation of London's Islington when middle-income families moved in and began renovating the shabby, modest mews and cottages in what was once deemed a blighted neighborhood. One key feature of gentrification in Glass's view is displacement. Once the process of gentrification starts in a district, she explains, it goes on rapidly until all or most of the original working class occupants are displaced and the whole social character of the district is changed. This notion of social character is one that's worth exploring because gentrification, unlike urban renewal, is often initially triggered by an influx of largely middle-class white inhabitants as opposed to government initiatives or community master plans. It is this seemingly organic process that has perpetuated the myth that gentrification is somehow natural and therefore inevitable. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to attend a housing justice conference at the Barnhart Center for Research on Women at Columbia University. There, April de Simone, a transdisciplinary practitioner working at the intersection of architecture, planning, and systems thinking, led a workshop exploring the historical and contemporary impacts of unjust policies and practices, redlining, and urban renewal. Urban dwellers will repeat to anyone who will hear it that renewal and constant change are hallmarks of any city, particularly New York City. But aside from the obvious economic and social ramifications of the displacement associated with gentrification and evictions due to the loss of affordability, there are also broader societal impacts which affect people's ability to nurture the social ties and contracts foundational to the survival of democracy. I asked April about her newest immersive experience, the practice of a democracy, we hold these truths, which launched in the summer of 2022 on the High Line in New York City. I also asked her about her collaborative experiences surfacing, reframing, and dismantling intentionally designed systems of inequity, and how, 
through this reimagining, we might somehow find a new path to democracy. It's simple when you think of it logically of if we do this and this and this, what will it yield? And then we see that the, the complexity is that no one wants to do this, this, and this. You know, that's the simplest things that would yield the highest um, result. I wish there was this one person that sees the value of this or two people that have lots of money and then just write the check and let us incubate and then prove, to give the proof of concept of what we can do. But it's always this control in these spaces around money on what their vision is, right? And that goes way back to millennia of who was commissioned to even do things for the Medici family and who then gets to control the narrative of what gets produced. And I think that that's what we're trying to disrupt is that it's not in a linear narrative. It's, you know, if we get investments from everyone, then we can have a more robust reflection of who's at the table, what the different needs are, and sort of the different authorship around, again, these socio-spatial complexities and how to, how to address them. What brings you to this work that you're doing right now? What impels you? You know, the, the story begins literally, I think, in my mom's womb, if we want to make that argument. And as I shared during the presentation, it's this keen awareness very early on. We underplay what kids internalize or view as they navigate the spaces we create. Uh, but growing up in the Bronx, while there was so much resiliency and community fabric, it's sort of a, an oxymoron or there was this dichotomy that existed that, you know, you're seeing this infrastructure around you and it is like, you know, what you eventually learn, the aftermath of a place like a what that got bombed by World War II, um, you know, artillery. And you're you're like, wait, I I never understood, literally, I remember having that consciousness of why is it that my neighborhood looks like this, where these experiences are like that. And, and again, we had a lot of love and resiliency, but that there were these, there were these bigger forces that you, that, you know, were codified to me or personified through like the Justice League. So you had like, you know, it's Wonder Woman, Batman, so, you know, you had that storyline that, that they represented democracy. And there were those facets of, um, you know, with Wonder Woman's costume or Superman's colors, that there was this component of going out and doing good in the world. And, and you would say, well, where's that force? Where's the Justice League um, showing up here? Because something is just not right. And there was just, you felt a lot of pain in, in space, like watching trauma from people and then internalizing what, we, what this trauma was. I think it really imprinted very early on that, well, why does this even exist to begin with? And that we're okay with answers like that's just how the world is or that's how it's meant to be. And I just, it's, I find that very hard to accept. Um, and again, whether it was growing up in a neighborhood that lost, you know, like 80 to 90% of its housing stock and just seeing rubble around you and then going to areas like Port Washington, Long Island and saying, well, why does this place look like this and this place looks like that, as I said before? And it's just trying to humanize these acts. Like, what has created these divisions in our society? And, and it impressed upon me, um, you know, very 
very consciously. You know, here's an infrastructure that we are absorbing some really horrific things that are making people not well, whether that was the heroin epidemic that was heavily criminalized in my community. On the heels of the heroin epidemic, you've had the HIV AIDS epidemic. And as I mentioned, my father died of that very young. And on the heels of HIV AIDS, you had the crack epidemic in our community and an unprecedented violence. And there was just this unraveling that even when we had heroin or you had the fires, there was still this fabric of the community that we we were we were our brother's keepers, so to speak. And then that just begins to unravel. And it's kind of like this footprint. And then you stop and you say, well, it just didn't start here. Like, how did we get here today? And how did my mom's generation or my grandma's generation or her parents, her parents, you know, then you start going back and it's just so systemic. It is. And, and I think it, it might be useful for our listeners to to go back in time, because even though housing inequality and racism exists in so many different countries, the systematic approach in the U.S. around redlining that we see having impacts with Katrina, with, you know, how housing is now accessible or inaccessible. Can you Explain to us the, the concept of redlining and, and the impact that it still has today in the work that you're doing. And I know it's a broad topic, so. I, I agree with you. Like, it's spot on. And not everyone understands what the nuances of what a redlining map represents. So, you know, what we're more aware of in our present moment, particularly because of the work of Kenneth Jackson in Credit Grass Frontier, Dr. Mindy Fullalove in her book, Root Shock, and of course, the more contemporary um, book, uh, uh, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, has elevated this consciousness of awareness, because we're not taught this, that at some point in time, when we were at our greatest downward spiral um, or economic hemorrhaging in this country with the Great uh, Depression, we, we, you know, it showed just how the complexity of how people stewarded democracy saying we cannot allow this to happen, but at the same time, the complexity of how unequal democracy or democratic values were applied. So essentially, in, in under the New Deal in the 1930s, President Roosevelt and, and his administration and others come together to address the massive hemorrhaging as a result of the 1929 market crash, particularly in the housing sector, but it was also a work program essentially. It was to mobilize federal money to put people back to work. And when people were able to go back to work, they were able to have spending ability. And that creates, you know, essentially the footprint of the massive suburbanization of America. It, it, it falls short on people to understand when we talk today about universal health care and these types of policies, that the New Deal was a social program that essentially creates the American middle class and essentially is what so many families have depended on to build this concept of intergenerational wealth. Prior to the New Deal, in order to buy a home or own property, you typically had to put 30 to 50% down, and you had terms five to seven or even five to 10 years um, to pay it off. But what happens is we have, again, this Great Depression, the 1929 market crash, and that typical term moment of five to seven or 10 years you didn't have the opportunity to refinance that lending are. So people couldn't pay their debt. So the government steps in, particularly around property, 
and says we have to stop the hemorrhaging and we'll create the what we know today, 15 to 30 year mortgage and sell this. So we'll refinance existing mortgages and then we'll take it a step further, begin to put people to work by creating roadways and, and suburban communities throughout uh, America. And essentially, Hulk, the Homeowners Own Corporation, is the first agency created that sort of creates these maps, 239 of them that are color-coded, like green, blue, yellow, and red, green and blue being optimal for investment. And those areas typically practice restrictive deeds or racial covenants, which were stipulations in the home, whether enforceable through a contract or a handshake. The, the concept was you didn't allow what was considered detrimental influences to come into these neighborhoods that would impact property value. And again, this is not the advent of that psychology or thinking. This, we can argue, is a psychology that has been with us since the first votes landed on this continent around applying value on others' worth to determine then how do they access land? How do they access economic well-being? You know, what we can even consider the social determinants of health uh, today based on human needs. So we create these maps and, and we mean the government. And again, the pivot point is that it's people put in positions of power to steward the ideologies and principles of democracy while they were doing it for a certain segment of democratic society. They were not for another because they didn't even see them as worthy. Uh, of that. So these maps begin to dictate land value and determine where we're going to stop the hemorrhaging and where we were not. And the interesting piece is when you look at communities that were, can, were, were redlined, it wasn't just about investment coming in. And they did give loans um, to homes within the redline area, but they still set these areas up in the long term as being areas that were eventually going to be in decline or hazardous. So the psychology is being planted. So whether you gave a loan in this space or not, you still created a, a psychological conditioning that these were not the places where you would want to invest. And they were very low on how they were going to give um, resources to. When you look at these areas, when this, these determinations were made, some of course needed more investment than just going out and building the suburbs, but others were actually intact ecologies that had vibrant ecosystems, business corridors, despite what was going on, it was still a neighborhood fabric. And that the labeling of these areas, of course, aided and abetted in their eventual decline, and then sort of concentrating, you know, the criminalization of poverty and people into these areas then to create this narrative of hierarchy, of human hierarchy. This area is for the supreme human being, and then this area is for the subcategory uh, of human beings. And so these maps then move on into, now we don't use them, and the Federal Housing Administration creates what's known as the underwriting manual. And in the underwriting manual, they have many stipulations around those about neighborhood composition, about deed restrictions, about zoning. So it's a further enforcement that now eliminates even maps. It's just a blanket language applied to everywhere investments gonna come into. And again, it wasn't just home ownership, it was the roadways, it was the, the rubber industry, it was the automobile industry. It dramatically changes the footprint 
of walkability, for example, because many suburban communities don't have the community Carter store that you can go to. You literally have to drive to the supermarkets and in my argument, become the biggest polluters of an environment, an existential environmental crisis because you have to drive everywhere. You can't walk in your neighborhood anymore to go get your goods and needs from your local market. So, you know, we, we create these, these psychologies of redlining. And today, the new redlining is that investment is coming in these once formerly disinvested areas and making it unaffordable for the people who have been on the front lines who wanted to invest in their own community in a myriad of ways, but never would be considered qualified to take in the resources to do that work. Let's stay with the example of the Bronx with, you know, the major Dingen Highway cutting through a, a vibrant community. And right in this moment, the South Bronx being insanely developed and that, you know, that mechanism of the rent gap being really obvious in, in Mott Haven. It feels like, especially growing up in the Bronx at a time where the community essentially rebuilt itself, does that inform the way that you run your work? Looking at, for example, the weed labs and the development of curriculum, can you tell me a little bit about your approach around tying these injustices to mitigate the, the negative impacts that you just mentioned? It's, it's really important that, you know, a lot of our work centers on three pillars. It's pedagogy, process, and practice. And what we're saying is that with pedagogy, it's how we're learning about the impact that we collectively um, are suffering from, that we're all experiencing a collateral consequence from, and how that pedagogy and learning differently or learning new information can inform different processes. And through those processes, how do we build different relationships, connections, or power dynamics that then can lead into a place of practice. And then that practice, we begin to vet how or what policies, practices, and investments do we need to heal the social fabric of our communities, to blur these lines that have been created by, you know, in my opinion, you know, people that really just didn't, that reinforces this hierarchy of human value in our built environment. And we have to address that. So a lot of the work is how did we get here? That which is the pedagogy. And that brings in so many different people. So we do a lot of exhibitions. One are curated with Undesign the Red Line. And our new exhibition is called The Practice of Democracy. And essentially it launched on the High Line in the summer of 2022. And it's now traveling through different cities throughout the country. And we're currently in Connecticut. And the whole concept behind the practice of democracy as far, as far as a pedagogical lens is saying, how do we spatialize democratic values? So through that, we, we begin to congregate so many different stakeholders from varying um, backgrounds and experiences and that ability to, to, to bring people together that typically don't come together really leads to these relationship buildings and connections because without that, We'll never shift a power dynamic. If you can't see me or understand how we're both suffering from decisions that have been made and continue to be made that keep it at, a, at an us versus them, then we are not going to have the necessary connection to each other or empathy to understand what each other um, is aware of and not aware of. So in grounding that work, then that is a touch point that goes into, well, what are projects on a local level that we can look at. 
and 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 what's the process of really vetting to ensure that what we're we're like workshopping or labbing now isn't going to create a collateral consequence in the future. So things that we're working on is master planning democracy. So it's looking at master planning, but through a lens of democracy, but with actual outcomes that are changing the systems within place. It's not saying, okay, mapping, um, ma uh, master planning democracy means let's put in 10,000 units of housing. It can be 10,000 of units of housing, but it's saying, how does that housing operate within an ecosystem of home? So that when that person steps out of that unit, the individual, and now they're on a neighborhood scale, what's their lived experience? Are they still experiencing educational and, and inequality? Are they still experiencing food injustice with the types of access to food that they're getting? Like, what is their lived experience and quality of life contingent upon a certain action? And the concept is to really create an ecosystem of cross-pollinating variables that begin to feed into one another. And, and that someone who may not be in that immediate neighborhood feels a stewardship responsibility, again, that I'm my brother's keeper in this concept of how democracy should be practiced spatially in the different communities. And then it's, what do we get to push forward through policies, practices, and investments? So in, in for example, we're starting what's called VESI. It's a, it's a derivative of vicinity to mean neighborhood. And what we're looking at is how do we look at financial instruments like a REIT or a real estate investment trust or a neighborhood equity fund? And why does that become important? It's so foundational to get the key to come in to a block and say, how do we work block by block to make sure that what we're talking about is in real time and not a white paper or some theory? With um, Bessie, it's understanding land acquisition and that there's different forms of land acquisition and that once you have it, then you could do something different. What's very, what's the travesty about the Bronx is that all that development that's occurring there has created massive speculation and commodification and wealth, not for then that's evenly distributed or, 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 so we may have a coffee shop, but who owns that coffee shop? How is that coffee shop operating in this greater ecology? And how is it changing these familiar narratives of inequity in the built environment? Lots of people are migrating down from the Bronx or, or northern cities into places like Trenton, um, New Jersey, because of the affordability aspect, right? Trenton has close to 3,000 vacancies. It's the Bronx of my era. And now here's a canvas that we really can create using LBJ and JFK's language of a model city, where if you have the right investment to come in, how does equity increase uh, or the future value of that equity get captured in a community equity fund versus it being extracted to just investors looking at the next piece of land to speculate or commodify, which is, again, something that predates the New Deal policies. That's something that Kenneth Jackson talks about in Crabgrass Frontiers is just how who gets to invest. And then that investment gets to control the, the spatial narrative for decades and generations to come. So we're hoping to really disrupt that in how we do land acquisition, how we do finance. We still have a challenge today, again, and it really conjures up the emotion of the Bronx, that when we were there, we wanted to fix 
our community and we had to rub two nickels together. Why is it that we still have a barrier today because of the financial tools, despite everyone talking about equity, increasing black home ownership, how is that really being actualized? Because when you come to a place like Trenton, for example, beautiful community in so many ways, but the narrative is all the negatives like the Bronx was in the 70s, 80s, and even 90s, right? And then you're saying, well, if we could get someone to come in and let's say restore five houses on a block, here's a low-hanging fruit that you're taking on that risk, working with people who want to stay and doing this restoration. And there's different financial tools we're using that, that captures value, but ensures healthy um, blocks and neighborhoods. But instead of it being extractive, you work with people who are willing to give up a portion of their equity to be part of this shared value ecology um, or economy that a portion of that equity increase goes back. To me, to date, it it sometimes is done, but it's done in, you know, in one scale of home. It's saying it has to be, you know, a sharecropper type of home that will come in and we'll put $2,500 in. But if you allow for different market strategies to come in on a block that represents multifamily, single family, whatever, it allows for someone to take that risk, which is what the government ironically did with the New Deal and is doing today because the South Bronx would not be, or the Bronx period, would not be the Bronx if government subsidies and tax abatements and all of these things weren't there to, to support the developer. So why would you give it to a development company that's exacerbating affordability instead of preserving what you can do with the interim stock? Because there are people that want to do well, or, or that's why we have the Community Reinvestment Act. And then you're going to cry when everything is unaffordable, but we had the opportunity to really address the different way we tell the story. And we also have to eliminate the vernacular, Isabel. You know, we, we resegregate our society with the vernacular of low income, moderate income, luxury, stop. When we do that, that aids and abets, again, this concept of hierarchy. And we need to change that dramatically because housing is housing. And there are different ways to access housing, but everyone should have access to live in diverse communities that you can go to one block and it's high in homes, you know, whatever you call that. But that's a choice. But there's a choice that you wouldn't feel the difference between that home and where you live because you're part of this greater ecology. And you're in, and that's just, you know, that's a reality. It's not saying we have to flatten everything and everyone lives in the same type of housing. It's saying, how do you do this with equity at the core? It's a perfect segue. And one of the challenges that I'm seeing in the, the work that, and I'm going to say the collective we, when we're working to change framing, is that it's much more difficult to engage with this kind of complexity in a conversation to explain the solutions are complex, but this is what we need to do to change. How do we frame those new narratives in way that invite folks to engage at whatever level, place, should I say, they're at, so that they're not just rejecting it wholesale by saying it's just too complicated and this is just the way things are, to your earlier point. It's a great question, and I think what, what happens simultaneously is very important to simplify the, the strategy and the, and the language, and that's what we do. And when we sit with people, 
it's like, oh, I see my role and what I can do as an investor, as an architect, or as a planner. It's not just talking about it through a lens of architecture exclusively or planning exclusively or finance exclusively. It's really saying that there's different cogs to make this all um, work. There are these individual points that lead to a collective block. And, and we're stronger as a block than we are as these little minor points, but these minor or these smaller points exist within a space. And that's that's the onus on us and the work that we're doing is explaining it very, very, you know, from the from lenses of human need, or or the, again, this concept of the social determinants of health. And I think when we rebrand the language, for example, with nimbyism, or this concept, we don't want things, rather than vilifying a NIMBY movement in a community, I think it's the opportunity to then activate how we are practicing democracy. Come here, deliberative democracy, right? And that we're, let's hear what your concerns are, not screaming, not blaming, but we're curating a space that shows a deeper history so that we are all coming from round one or four or one with same themes or language. Because you'll be surprised how many people just don't understand this deeper systemic history that has gotten us to this point. And, and we have a responsibility to do that. And I feel that once we create those ground floor understanding, we can really begin to, again, look at a block and say, well, if a house, this came here, how does it actually impact your neighborhood? So to me, I think the simplifying is really taking education beyond white papers or these one-off um, summits or conferences. It's not just talking about something. It's not just saying why using low income is really a derogatory term when you see someone working three jobs just to have a roof over their head. And, and people say, well, what do we use? Just say housing. Like, like we've been so socially conditioned with the hierarchy that even in the most progressive spaces, we still regurgitate that same language. So how do you take it and then show when you remove all of what has been these cognitive conditioned um, vernacular or the narrative, look how it actually works. And that to me, again, squares on this concept of practicing democratic values because it's right to assemble and it's this right to understand uh, the ability to have the opportunity to pursue life, liberty, and happiness for yourself and for your community and for everyone around you. We touched a little bit about what has permeated sort of your understanding of, of the world and how you want to show up in it. What keeps you going in this work? It's almost um, this emotion inside that I really love democracy. People say, well, why democracy? Like it died. To me, I don't want to take a defeatist attitude and saying that dem democracy can't die, but it doesn't have to be what we have known it to be. And there's an excitement to re-envision what America, when we hear the greatest generation or we hear Frederick Douglass or the belief of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, you know, what they were talking about is this ideal vision of equity. And that's what keeps me going is that if we all throw our hands up and say it's dead or it's just too hard or I don't want to look at where we are at because of that attitude and what has happened. And if we really believe that these value systems, because we, we have consternation when they're not met, when we see an injustice, when we see inequity, there is like, that's not right. Well, we, how do we point it out and say and work? And that ability to be in that Petri dish 
to, you know, uh, explore or experiment with democracy is something that really keeps me going because I know that if we can do things, the rage I had from growing up and seeing what happened to my friends and my family and the communities that were neglected, but what still continues to happen in the communities and the suffering and the violence. I, I feel that I can't throw my hands up. That is not being a proper steward of democracy or democratic values. And, and I really have hope in what we can envision because when you start sitting down and you can share that language, it's like, look at what we can actually do together. And there's different ways to get to this end goal of, of equity. So it's definitely this hope of democracy, but coming across people like you and others that really begin to pour each other's cup and be that bread for the journey um, to say, you know, how, what do we need to do to come together and more people believe in wanting to heal and spatialize equity and justice truthfully and authentically than not. And if we can create that cohesion with us and, and then invite others in, again, it's that hope of what can actually be moving forward. April de Simone is a transdisciplinary practitioner working at the intersection of architecture, planning, and systems thinking. She collaborates with different communities across the U.S. Design Influence is brought to you by 725. Since 2007, we've been helping social justice organizations leverage design thinking and making to translate their systems change leadership into tools for stakeholder engagement and collaboration. Book a discovery call at 725.com or get in touch at studio at 725.com. S-E-B-E-N 25.com.